Good morning, Lake Avenue Church. Happy Labor Day weekend. I'd like to tell you a story this morning. Uh, actually, first I should probably introduce myself. I'm, I'm Jeff Rose. Uh, you may have seen me around here quite a bit in the past year, but I've just started on, uh, on full-time staff in order to help implement this thing that Wesley was just talking about. Um, I'm the director of community formation, and the pastor's gonna talk a lot about that next week, so I won't uh, go into the details, but he's given me the opportunity this morning to lay a biblical foundation for that vision. And that's why we've just read from the book of Acts. Um, actually, we didn't read from the book of Acts. I think I jumped the gun. <laughs> um, allow me, I'm sorry, I've just messed this up already, but allow me to read from the book of Acts. This is um, Acts uh, chapter 2, um, verses uh, 40 through 41. And my apologies to the readers that were ready to come up here. Um, with many other words, he warned them. This is Peter. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, the reason we're talking about the book of Acts is that there is a big story going on here that we are all of us ultimately a part of. And Acts 2 specifically is the culmination of something that begins all the way back in the Old Testament. So I'd like to talk about that today. That's the big story. But what's going on in the book of Acts? You may remember that the book of Acts was written by the same guy that wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. This is the physician Luke. And it's the last narrative book of the Bible, uh, the last book of stories. After that, we just get the letters to the churches and then the book of Revelation. But the book of Acts talks about the founding of the early church, yeah? And it, it, um, it recounts the spread of the early church, mostly under the ministries of Paul and Peter. Now, this particular chapter 2 of Acts, many teachers and theologians have seen here in Acts 2 a source of principles for a healthy, balanced church life. Yeah? So we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, Acts 2 is particularly important. It culminates something that begins in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in fact, because what happens in Acts 2 is a covenant renewal speech, a covenant renewal ceremony, yeah? But Peter, when he gets up in front of this Pentecost church, he transforms this covenant renewal speech 
in a way that's really significant. And that, the result of that was this ideal church that we've just read about in those verses. So in order to understand this change that has happened there at Pentecost in Jerusalem, we need to look a little bit at um, what a covenant renewal speech is in the Old Testament. So we'll do that first, just briefly, and then we'll talk about some covenant renewal speeches in the New Testament, and we'll end up trying to imagine what would covenant renewal look like right here at Lake Avenue Church. So, first of all, the story begins all the way back from the Exodus. Israel has just come out, traumatic experience coming out from Egypt, and this is when God begins to reveal to Israel who he is, yeah? The Israelites at this point do not know God very well at all. They do know something about a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They certainly know that this Yahweh was involved in whatever just happened in Egypt, right? They've had this traumatic experience. They came out from slavery and out from under Pharaoh. They saw what God did to the Egyptians with the plagues. But who is this Yahweh? What kind of a God acts like that? Yeah, kind of scary. So God reveals himself. He inspires Moses and Joshua to use a cultural metaphor that Israel would have already understood in order to begin to model what this relationship looks like, to reveal himself to them. And that model, that cultural tradition, is something that you've heard about. It's called the covenant, yeah? Now, you know that the covenant was one of the most quintessential aspects of the biblical worldview. But early on, before Israel had the Torah, before they had the books of Moses, God used a cultural metaphor from the ancient Near East to, to reveal to them this covenant idea. The idea that man can have a covenant with God is revolutionary. And the cultural tradition that it was based on is called a vassal treaty, yeah? Now, a vassal treaty was basically a covenant. It was a covenant between a big king, like a king of kings, and a little king, like a little um, local chieftain, what's called a vassal, hence they're called a vassal treaty. Now, this, um, these vassal treaties are really fascinating to Old Testament geeks like me. There's just so much that's cool going on. There's some very obscure parts in the Old Testament that come to light when you study these vassal treaties. I used to actually have a, when I was at Fuller, I had a little study group, and we would come over, it was the Sumerian study group. We would come over and read ancient Near Eastern texts, and especially these, these vassal treaties are so fascinating. But um, God does reveal himself in other ways later on to Israel. You know that he um, reveals himself as a good shepherd, as, as a heavenly father, even at one point, a husband, yeah? A loving but possessive husband, right? Pursuing his wayward spouse, Israel. But the most enduring and recurring metaphor, model for this relationship is the covenant. And the covenant is rooted in these vassal treaties. So I won't tell you too much about vassal treaties, it's tempting, but basically early in Israel's history when they're first establishing their covenant with God, Moses and Joshua use this covenant renewal speech in a way that's very similar to the vassal treaties. So the early ones have a, a more fuller format that has all five parts of this literary structure. Now, um, do you remember the, the strange story in um, Genesis 12 when there's a, this fiery smoldering pot that passes between the pieces of a sacrificed animal? It's really strange. Anyway, vassal treaties really kind of brings illumination to that. But for most of the Old Testament, 
the, the covenant renewal speech that's based on this just has three main parts. So I'll just tell you those three main parts so that we can understand what's going on in Acts, and then we'll go back to the New Testament. So there are three main parts to what's called covenant renewal speech, and they're easy to remember. They are the review, repentance, and response, right? Review, repentance, and response. Now, the review is the historical prologue. It's what scholars call a historical prologue. It's a review of the mighty acts of God. It's a review of all the times that God invaded history on Israel's behalf, yeah? And it would be the basis of this treaty for their trust in him, yeah? So they would review the mighty acts of God. You might think of it also as like God's resume, yeah, of this king that's going to take care of them. So the first part is the review of the mighty acts of God. Now, the second part usually takes the form in the Old Testament of a call to repentance. But in the early parts, the, the early treaties, the early covenant renewal ceremonies had, uh, had to approximate the vassal treaties so that Israel would get the idea. And there, they lay out in detail the terms of the treaty, right? The rules, the commandments. So the commandments in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, those are the terms of the treaty, the stipulations, right? Um, now, in most of these covenant renewal ceremonies in the Bible, they don't have to lay out in detail all of those laws because by then, Israel know the, knows the laws. And the reason that they're having to renew these laws is often because they've backslidden, right? They have not been obeying them. But they knew the laws. What were some of those laws, right? Stop abusing the widow and the orphan and the foreigner in your midst, yeah? Put away idols. Do not steal your neighbor's wife or his life or his stuff, or by bearing false witness, his reputation, yeah? And then the 10th commandment is kind of a, a broad ethic, a broad ethic that should really prevent any, any kind of an act of cruelty, and that is thou shalt not covet. Don't poison your mind with envy. So by the time that Israel has entered the promised land, they know very well these commandments, right? This was the treaty, the stipulations, that was going to make Israel into a nation unlike the other nations, right? This would make them the nation that through her all the other nations could be blessed. They would be a nation unlike the rest. But the problem was they didn't want to be different from the other nations. They wanted to be like the other nations. And on that basis, they kept on ignoring the rules. And so the prophets, whenever they come back, they need to renew the covenant with Israel. They don't go back over the, the laws in an entirety. So this is the second part of this would be the, the call to repentance. Turn your hearts back to God. Turn your behavior back to Moses. So there's those two parts. Review of the mighty acts of God and the call to repentance. And the third part is the response of the community. That's pretty much what it sounds like. The covenant partner could respond in repentance and renewed blessing or rebellion and judgment. And unfortunately, that's what Israel's cycle was. They tended to just, there was a cycle of repentance and apostasy and judgment over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. It happens throughout the book of Judges, throughout the monarchy, and throughout the books of the prophets. Repentance and then apostasy and judgment. Uh, do you know what that word means, apostasy? Um, that word is basically breaking up with God, abandoning your faith, feeding your doubts, yeah, denying Christ. It's an egregious thing. It's not just an ancient Israel thing. Anyway, because they were constantly falling into apostasy, abandoning their faith, they were constantly falling into judgment. And so the prophets would come back and, and renew, try to renew this covenant by calling them to repentance. 
And toward the end, the later prophets, they would start to deliver what you might call a covenant ending speech. Their attitude was one, they were just fed up, right? Forgiveness or repentance, that ship has sailed. It's too late for that. Judgment is coming and you deserve it, yeah? But sometimes even that would work too. Sometimes it would scare some sense into them. And so that is the covenant renewal speech in the Old Testament. Review of the mighty acts of God, the call to repentance, and the response of the community. Now, the point of all this for the New Testament is that for the New Testament Christians, these early Jewish Christians, their Bible was the Old Testament. Now, there were New Testament writers that were inspired by God to write new scriptures, but their Bible at that time was the Old Testament. And that means that they were steeped in these covenant renewal speeches. So much so that these early Jewish Christians, they could hardly get it get up in front of people to preach the gospel or maybe even toast somebody's birthday without defaulting to a covenant renewal speech, yeah? So we, we have two really interesting examples of this in the book of Acts. Uh, one is in Acts 2 and the other is in Acts chapter 7. Now the important one is in Acts chapter 2. I'll tell you about that one in just a minute, but Peter transforms that covenant renewal speech a little bit so it's not as recognizable. Let's start with the more obvious one that takes place first in uh, Acts chapter 7. Now, remember in Acts chapter 7, there was this guy named Stephen, and he was a devout Christian and a very active minister of the gospel. But he gets arrested on completely false charges and gets dragged before the Sanhedrin. Now, remember the Sanhedrin is the same religious court that had sentenced Jesus, yeah? And when Stephen gets up in front of this court to defend himself, what does he do? He breaks into a covenant renewal speech. But Stephen's covenant renewal speech is one of the longest and most eloquent in the Bible. His, his historical prologue of the mighty acts of God is like 50 verses long, right? Even longer than a lot of the ones of Moses and Joshua. And you, if you didn't know better, if you didn't know that this is what he was doing, a, a review of the mighty acts of God in a covenant speech, you might just think maybe he was stalling. He knows what's coming and he's trying to prolong his life. But no, if you look at the references that he makes, it's clear uh, that it's implied that he has a great respect for the Torah and the traditions and the temple. So he's kind of acquitting himself of these false charges as he goes along. Now, if there's anything that really ought to have melted the hard hearts of the Sanhedrin, it ought to have been this long, eloquent historical prologue, this covenant renewal speech, yeah? But as he starts winding into a close, he starts way from the beginning. He starts before Abraham has even entered Haran, and he goes through the entire history. But as he winds to a close, it becomes clear he does not mince words. You might remember this. He, it becomes clear that what he's giving is going to be a covenant ending speech, yeah? And he admonishes the, uh, the Sanhedrin for their hard hearts. He quotes Joshua and admonishing their stiff necks, and he basically says, your ancestors persecuted all of the prophets, and now you have just crucified the Messiah. And unfortunately, their response is that they drag him out for execution. Now, the irony of this would not have been lost on, a, on, on the Israelites at that time, right? This is the most extraordinary covenant speech maybe in the whole Bible, and their response of his own people, of his religious leaders, was to drag him out to execution. It's a little bit like another place in scripture where we have this contrast between the covenant speech and the response. 
but it's the opposite. And that takes place in Jonah. Let me just mention this briefly. It's kind of a sidetrack, but it's interesting. Remember what happens in the book of Jonah? There's a lot of kids here. You guys remember the big fish? Well, after Jonah comes out of that big fish, he did not want to go to Nineveh. But he goes, he finally gets there, and the covenant ending speech that he gives is one of the shortest and laziest in the entire Bible. All he says is, three days, Nineveh's overturned, three days, overturned, three, bye. And then he goes out and he makes a little camp to watch what's gonna happen, to watch the fireworks, yeah? He's like, what's it gonna be, God? Is it gonna be fire and brimstone? Is it gonna be a, a, a sharknado? Nothing, right? Because of their response. Nineveh has one of the biggest responses anywhere in scripture of this repentance. Every man, woman, and child, and goat dons sackcloth and ashes and cries out to a God that they don't even know because they're foreigners. Now that irony would not have been lost on Israel, yeah? Well, back in Acts 7, the irony is just the opposite. This long speech gets this poor guy executed. So that's Acts 7. Now, just one little side note. There was somebody in that audience where St. Stephen was executed, where they, there was a delayed response, right? A rabbi Saul was watching that. We know him as the Apostle Paul later. Something that Stephen said, I think, planted a little a seed in Saul's heart, right? That is not, Stephen would not get to see the fruition of that, but it comes to fruition, right, on the road to Damascus. But that's, that's another story. So, back to Acts 2. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has foretold that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. Just before he ascends into heaven, he foretells that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. They're not even sure what that is yet. Well, in Acts 2, Jews from all over the Greco-Roman Empire and the disciples have gathered into Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. Now, you know Pentecost is associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost, before that, it was associated with other things that make it rather significant. Why would the Holy Spirit kind of choose this holiday to pour out himself on this early church? A few things about Pentecost. In the Old Testament, Pentecost was just a wheat harvest, right? It probably had been a pagan fertility festival back in Canaan, but the Hebrews have filled it with monotheistic significance, right? First of all, because it's the wheat harvest, it's an opportunity to go to Jerusalem and give the first fruits of your wheat harvest to God and to the temple, yeah? But more importantly, Pentecost actually was called in, uh, in Hebrew, it's called Shavuot, right? It means weeks. Because Pentecost, Shavuot, was celebrated seven weeks after Passover. And so it's associated with the Passover. They're imbuing this, this old fertility ritual with the mighty acts of God. And so, um, and the mighty acts of God that they're associating here are, are from the book of Exodus. Now, seven weeks after the original Passover, when they came out of Egypt, they arrived at Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And so Shavuot was associated with the receiving of the Ten Commandments, right? So that's what they were celebrating when they went to the temple to give their offerings. And something I just found out recently as I was re-researching this, Shavuot and Pentecost in the post-exilic period was specifically associated with covenant renewal. And so in this Jewish holiday, we had a time where people would come together to Jerusalem, give the first fruits of their harvest, but they would already be in a mood to recommit right their, their hearts to God and their behavior back to Moses. Yeah, that was what this holiday celebrated. It was a, a holiday specifically focusing on covenant renewal. Well, 
You know what happened in Acts 2. Jews from all over the Greco-Roman world have gathered here in, in Jerusalem along with the disciples, and what happens? They get ambushed by God, right? They experience an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, and just as Jesus had foretold. Now, what happens next? Somebody has to get up and explain to these people, some of them aren't even believers yet, and yet they've had this experience, somebody has to get up and explain what's just happened to them. And that somebody is the Apostle Peter. Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know that whenever he gets up in front of people, it can be a little bit hit or miss, yeah? Um, you remember the time that God, uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He was talking to Peter. Um, Nick Barrett actually just reminded me of another, in a talk that he gave recently, that um, even at the transfiguration where Jesus is, is revealed in his full glory and Moses and Elijah are standing on either side of him, Peter says some really obscure things, right? All the disciples are speechless except for Peter who goes, let's build some booths, right? It's just, it's very obscure. Anyway, Peter gets up in front of these people and you're like, oh boy, all right. Well, because there's Jews from all over the Greco-Roman Empire, some of them not even saved yet, they haven't maybe even heard about Jesus, you're hoping maybe from Peter for a little bit of cultural sensitivity and it's just not what you would expect from this guy. But Peter does something really extraordinary. And you already know, what does he do? He breaks into a, he defaults to a covenant renewal speech, right? Because that's what you do in the first century Jew. And he actually changes it though. He transforms this covenant renewal ceremony in three really important ways. And so yes, since you know the three parts, you'll be able to understand how he transforms it. First of all, Peter, instead of going back to mighty acts of God from the past, right? The, the, the mirac miracles of Yahweh from the Old Testament, he goes to prophecies from the Old Testament that are being fulfilled in the present. Yeah? So that's an important shift. Prophecies from the past that are being fulfilled right then in their present. And the second way that he transforms it is even more significant because he makes Jesus the agent of the mighty acts of God. Now, we take that for granted that Jesus is divine, right? But they didn't know that yet. And Peter had to reveal in a culturally sensitive way the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is actually God incarnate. And he does it in this way by basically making Jesus take the place of Yahweh in this covenant renewal speech. Remember that Jesus also kind of had to be culturally sensitive in revealing his divinity. He didn't just come right out and say, I am God. He said, the son of man can forgive sins. And his audience would have said, oh, only, only God can forgive sins. <gasps> Wait a minute, right? So Jesus had done this too. And now Peter is being very culturally sensitive but he reveals it to them. And the third transformation of this really doesn't have much to do with Peter. At this point, at this covenant renewal ceremony, the redemptive work of Christ has already happened. And now, just as Jesus has foretold, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That is instrumental in breaking this cycle of apostasy and rebellion from the Old Testament. Now, it says in verse, uh, verse uh, 47, that now God will add to their number daily. So now with this change, this early church can go out along those nicely paved Roman roads and spread the gospel to a Greco-Roman empire that's already united by a common Greek language, right? So it's an opportune time for this to happen. So bearing that in mind, let's go over this one more time. This um, Acts 40, uh, Acts chapter 2 of 40, I want you to bear in mind a few things as I read it one more time. Um, 
Can't find it in my notes, so I'll pull it out. I've got it in my pocket too. Um, remember that I said in the beginning that this Acts 2 passage is a source of principles for a, a healthy and balanced church. A lot of theologians and teachers have talked about that. Steve Bladen is one of them. In his book, um, Small Groups with Purpose, he, he roots um, his five principles into Acts, in Acts 2. Basically, those five principles are these. You don't have to remember these, but just kind of think of these as I'm reading. They are prayer, service, celebration, and evangelism, and teaching, or discipleship generally, yeah? Prayer, service, celebration, evangelism, and teaching. So kind of listen for those as I read it one more time. With many other words, he warned them, that's Peter, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's his call to repentance. And here's their response. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and, and this is the important part, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They, had, they enjoyed the favor of all people. That means that they were going out and they were celebrating and it was their love and celebration that was drawing people to them and that's how people were meeting Christ, yeah? This, this fellowship meal that they had, it wasn't like a communion ritual as we think about it. It had Eucharist significance, but this was just a celebration of a communal meal and it was reaching people. People were being drawn into the church because of the celebration that they had. Now. 3,000 people. I hate to point this out, but you know, even by the standards of those days, that's a mega church. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, it, it's the first day of the first church in history, and they're probably already going to have to break into two services. But the response of this church was to have this idyllic, Eden-like community where they focused on those five, these five balancing principles of prayer, service, celebration, evangelism, and teaching. Now, for our, um, for our rollout of the missional communities that we're going to be talking about next week, we're going to focus on three of those things. We do evangelism in a lot of areas of our church and teaching in pretty much every area of our church and discipleship. But for our missional communities, we're going to focus on these three aspects of prayer, service, and celebration. And so we'll talk about the short-term rollout of that next week. But I want you to think about what would, what would the long-term vision of that look like here at Lake Avenue Church? What is this prayer, service, and celebration that we're going to be joining together to do? What would that look like? What's the ultimate goal? I would phrase it like this. We want Lake Avenue Church to be a place where truth and love flow out so that the untruthed are drawn in and find transforming love. Now, I'll say that one more time, but let me, let me explain this word untruth. I know it's, it's not even really a, a real word, but what I mean by untruth is not only people that have never experienced the gospel, that have never had a chance to assimilate this saving knowledge of Christ, I also mean that, but I also mean people that have been saturated and have assimilated untruth. 
deeply saturated in untruth, right? Whether it be from the deceptions of our culture or even just the, the self-deceptions of our own sinful nature, right? Understood that way, it's clear that I'm not just talking about some demographic out there, right? We are all of us, this side of eternity, untruthed in some places in our hearts and our minds. But we have been in therapy a little bit longer, yeah? We have been redeemed and we are called upon to overflow with the good news, right? And so understood that way, let me rephrase this one more time. Lake Avenue Church will again be a place where truth and love will flow out into this city, just as at Jerusalem at Pentecost. And the untruth will be drawn in to find a transforming love. That is our vision. That is our vision, and that will not be something that is unfamiliar to this church. So let's review just where we are in closing, where we've come so far. Where are we in this big story? First of all, we talked about how God, early in Israel's history, used a cultural metaphor to explain his covenant relationship with them, right? The vassal treaty or the covenant. Secondly, we learned that this um, covenant renewal ceremony involves three parts. The, the uh, review of the mighty acts of God, the call to repentance, and the response. And finally, we learned that in Acts 2, Peter gets up in front of this church that has just received the Holy Spirit and preaches the good news of Jesus using a transformed covenant renewal ceremony. And that that church's response was to form this idyllic community where they took care of each other and focused on prayer, service, celebration, evangelism, and teaching. So, what does this have to do with us here at Lake Avenue Church? I would put it to you this way. I think that we should think about these missional communities as our pastor's vision, Pastor Matthew's vision, of a covenant renewal tailored to Lake Avenue Church. Yeah? So what are the three parts? We have, we have quite a historical prologue, don't we? Have you heard the story? You probably have. It's on our website, but I'll tell you again just in case you've forgotten. 128 years ago, there was a young African-American woman who was partly disabled, and she had a vision to start a Sunday school just a few blocks from here because the nearest church was like a three-mile three walk in either direction, yeah? Now, can you imagine in 1895 how the enemy must have taunted her in her vision? <clears throat> but she did it, yeah? Uh, he must have said, Haley, Brian, you're gonna do what? What do you think you're gonna do? But she did it, and within a year, her ministry, her Sunday school, had caught the attention of the first mayor of Pasadena right, William Waterhouse, who donated this property to build this church, and for 128 years, this church has continued to reach out and nurture this community, to reach out across the globe with our missionaries, generation after generation, for 128 years. It's exciting. So our plans for a missional community they're not gonna seem like a radical break from the past, yeah? I think that they'll seem more like a chance to reconnect with our deep roots in this church for 128 years. But even more so, a chance to reconnect with our even deeper roots in the church founded 2,000 years ago at Jerusalem. And so, Lake Avenue Church, that is our historical prologue. Our pastor will give us a call to missional renewal next Sunday, and what is the third part? The response. Lake Avenue Church, what will be your response?
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would show each person here a vision of their place in this big unfolding story. I pray that just as in that community gathered at Jerusalem for Pentecost, that you would fill each of these disciples here with your Holy Spirit of truth and love to bring about a new outward-facing enrichment of our church life. I pray that we will continue to do all that we do only for the spread of your kingdom and only by your power and achieve it only for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.